It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for listening. And as always, you can get the latest episodes of the Pete Callender Show here at the PeteCallenderShow.com. Amazingly enough, it's true. Also, on any of your favorite podcasting platforms, you can also join the Facebook group, the Pete Callender Show, where we solve all of the world's problems. And uh, we've got the Patreon account that we've got set up as well, so you can uh, join uh, the growing list of patrons like Kim and Alan and Ashley, and Mary, and Matthew, and Meredith, and Eric. We appreciate all of your support. Couldn't do it without you. Um, over at Mattress Man, there's another uh, fella, Chuck, who owns Mattress Man stores. Couldn't do the show without him. Mattressmanstores.com. Um, they want you to know, by the way, that uh, they're at, uh, the folks at Mattress Man, they're ready to help you have a better night's sleep. Okay, you got a lot on your mind. You want to be able to just shut down when you lay your head on the pillow, go right to bed, right? So private appointments available by phone, video conference, or in store, okay? They're committed to serving you well and responsibly during this time. Simply provide your contact information and request an appointment date, and then the folks at Mattress Man will be in touch to schedule your appointment by whatever method that you prefer. All right. And if you do one of the in-store appointments, social distancing okay, is observed. They will not be within six feet of you. Uh, one guest or family unit, couple, whatever, like if it, you know, just y'all, just one guest at a time in the store and uh, their card reader and register are all sanitized after each use and single use pillowcases provided for each visitor. All right. So again, can the business operate safely? Mattress Man stores can. This is what they offer for you. So if you've been thinking about getting a new mattress, please patronize the folks who help keep the show on the air, and that is Mattress Man. Buy local, sleep better, experience the difference at Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com. The North Carolina General Assembly has now approved a pandemic relief package, uh, totals about $1.6 billion. The governor has signed it into law, and joining me now is Becky Gray. She is the senior vice president at the John Locke Foundation. You can read her work at carolinajournal.com. Becky, welcome back to the program. How are you doing? Thank you, Pete. It's always a pleasure to be with you. I'm just delighted to get to talk to you. Thank you. So how was it covering the legislative session while they were all doing it remotely? Did you actually go down to the legislature or were you Skyping in or Zooming in or or whatever it was? <laughs> oh, no, they they really um, had the, the, the building and the complex was very secure. The only people that were allowed in the legislative buildings uh, were the members, staff and a few media folks. Um, they had all of the PPE. E all over the place. There was um, the hand sanitizers and that kind of thing. They took people's temperature as they came into the building. So there was no 
face-to-face monitoring any of this. But Pete, I will tell you, just as so many of us, as we have experienced this over the last six weeks or two months of working from home, of teleconferencing, of, you know, many of us are fortunate enough to have the kind of jobs that, that lend itself well to that kind of interaction. And the General Assembly really was no exception to this. They had Zoom meetings by committee and anybody could um, could access that. So you could watch the committee meetings. A lot of members were on their Zoom computers. You could see either in their offices or perhaps from their homes. Um, and so it, it it was very different. It was odd, but it worked very well. And I will tell you from personal experience, um, I had no problem at all interacting with legislators. They were very responsive to telephone calls. They were responsive to text messages with questions about process or what's going on or even specific recommendations for some of the legislation that they were considering. And so all in all, I think it worked really well given the the restraints that we're all working under. It was a little weird when they were voting because um, if you've ever been in that legislative complex, their seats are like right next to each other. They all have seat mates, and so they're they're in there pretty tight. And um, there's a vote that is required. And under the Constitution, there's a certain way that they have to vote. So they did have to go into the chamber to cast their vote. And so, um, but, but they worked it out. And instead of having the vote last for, you know, the time that's open for the vote, instead of it being 15 seconds in the House, it was 20 minutes. And so members could come in, a few could come in at a time as they felt comfortable. So again, it was, it was weird and it was different, just like we're all experiencing the way that we interact now, you know, whether it's with Facebook, with grandchildren, or whether it's Zoom conference meetings or those kind of things. The General Assembly adapted as well. And to be honest with you, Pete, I thought it worked really, really well. I thought it was transparent and open. Um, and the members were really open to doing it and interacting with the public. So under the circumstances, I thought it worked real. The, the process worked really well. So last year when we talked about the General Assembly sessions, uh, we thought it would never end. Right. Uh, and uh, now so far they came in, they like cranked out a billion and a half dollars in spending, unanimous votes in both chambers. Governor signs it and now they're out for two weeks. Right. And but this was, you know, this was different. And yeah, you're right. And we're used to, you know, it seems like over the last several years, it's like a never ending session and they come in and they go out and they come in and they go out and, you know, they never leave. This was a little bit different in several ways. And and let me explain to you why. Um, you know, the, the General Assembly, like everyone else, had been watching what was going around going on around the world and around the country. Uh, They were monitoring, as as many of us were, the direction that was coming from the federal government that was coming into the states. Um, The way our Constitution is set up and the way the separation of powers is designated in in our Constitution, um, in North Carolina, the governor is the one who is authorized and under the you know, everything that has to do with his office is the one who issues the emergency management um, of these kind of um, 
emergencies and, and declarations that we have. Um, and so all of that was in his purview um, for the immediate reaction to this. The General Assembly's job under the Constitution is to appropriate funds. And so they were watching very closely, monitoring. The House had set up a series of committees. They were hearing from different state agencies and groups of what the evolving needs were, whether it was with the hospitals and the medical providers or whether it was in education or, you know, on down the line of, of what was needing, monitoring that very carefully. So at the appropriate time and uh, this week, and I mean, there's, you know, always a discussion of those things. I would certainly agree that, that this week was the time for the General Assembly to step in and you know, um, act under their constitutional authority. What we had was we had the federal government, and this is in that National CARES Act that was the $2 trillion appropriation that came from the federal government. That had been issued and distributed to the states. The state's share of that here in North Carolina was $3.5 billion. So that money from the CARES Act had come into North Carolina, and there was some discretion in how that money was going to be spent. It was the General Assembly's job to designate where that money was going to go. That's why they came into session last week. That's why it all happened the way that it did. Now, one of the reasons why, you know, it may have seemed to have gone, you know, really smoothly and peak for you and I and people that have, have been critical before of some of the, you know, endless discussion and the debate and the, the disagreements on things, this money that came from the federal government was really designated. There were pathways that that funding had to go to. There was not a whole lot of flexibility in how the state could allocate and spend that money. Kind of in short, shorthand piece of that is the federal government could be used for new programs and new spending that was required because of the COVID-19 Recovery Act. So there were there were really quite a bit of limitations on how that money would be spent. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of this that they came in and this, um, their work last week finished up on Saturday. The governor has actually signed these bills this week, so it's now official. And they designated $1.6 billion to be distributed. Well, you know, that's clearly less than the 3.5 total billion dollars that came into North Carolina. And the reason for that is they don't have to spend it all at once. They actually have until December 31st to decide where this money's going to go. So what they did this week is they came in and really looked at, okay, where do we need to get that immediate help? Where are the most critical needs in North Carolina that, that need to be done right away? And it was things like, you know, money to the North Carolina National Guard. There was money for school nutrition to to ensure that the kids are getting, you know, we've seen that the, the distribution of the lunches and the breakfast, uh, particularly those low-income kids. Um, some of the other, you know, direct um, coronavirus things that have to do with the hospitals and mm -hmm. taking care of, you know, the, the public and private testing, some of those related needs, some of the residential facilities. I mean, you know, it goes on and on because there's, you know, quite a bit of money that, 
what they did this week is they distributed and designated that's about half a little less than half of the total amount of money that North Carolina is getting they have set aside the rest of it to wait and see what the needs may be in the next several weeks or months they're coming back on May 18th so you know they're watching and monitoring this very carefully to see where the money is needed they've got the money there and can certainly get it distributed pretty quickly but we also don't want to waste any of this money so you know it's being done carefully and thoughtfully and really looking at where the immediate needs how can we get the biggest bang for the buck how can we get people back on their feet as quickly as we can but also holding back on some of that money because as, as we know, it's a very fast-moving and evolving situation. And the other big question out there, Pete, is what are our revenues going to look like moving forward? You know, um, the sales tax revenue, just because people aren't working, they're not buying things, um, the sales tax revenue, and, and those folks who still have their jobs get really getting a sense people are, are afraid to spend money because of the uncertainty with employment moving forward. Um, so we're going to see a reduction in the sales tax revenue. Uh, we know we're going to see a reduction in income tax. Now, we won't even see that until, you know, like a year from now. Um, but there's going to be some real hits to the revenue that North Carolina is going to be experiencing. And again, we just want to be careful with the money that we have to make sure that we're filling the needs that we have right now, but also are being prudent and making plans because we're going to have big challenges in the next coming weeks, in the next coming months, and I would argue in the next year and perhaps even longer than that. The original budget deficit that I remember was two, two and a half billion. And now uh, the speaker came out and said they're looking somewhere like three and a half billion, four billion. So, yeah, no one really knows the impact this is going to have on the budget. And um, I know what's going to happen because it happens when there are budget surpluses. It's the same thing that happens when there are budget deficits, which is Democrats will call for a raise in taxes <laughs> no matter what. It, it seems to it's always the perfect solution for every problem, it seems. But um, we don't know the revenue picture. And uh, it seemed like there was an initially a, a fight between. Well, what I saw was a disagreement, let's say, between staffers actually on Twitter from the House and the Senate side. It's all Republicans, but they were arguing about the pace at which to spend this. And as I kind of picked up, it seemed like the House wanted to spend more of the money sooner than the Senate did. Uh, and the Senate's plan seems to be hoping that they can use some of this, as you said, to fill that budget gap. But you've got other states that have been recklessly spending for years, and now they're looking at this federal money and saying, oh, good, we can plug up these structural deficits that, that we've created uh, under, the, uh, under the cover of COVID. And, uh, and so we don't even know if we're going to be able to use this money, right, to, to plug this budget deficit. Yep, you're exactly right. And, you know, what you just laid out is exactly why the federal government said you can't use this money just to fill budget holes. You have to use it for um, programs and getting people back on their feet because of the COVID virus and the impact that that's had on the healthcare system, on the education system and on the economic 
system. So, you know, Pete, that's exactly what why the federal government put these restrictions or these guardrails on this money. And, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, Illinois has for years mismanaged their pension plan. I mean, they are almost on the verge of bankruptcy. Doesn't have anything to do with the COVID-19. This is something that's been evolving over a number of years. Well, you know, the federal government is the intent of this $2 trillion is to get people back on their feet after the impact of the COVID-19. It's not to go in and fix long-standing um, bad management and bad decisions by states. And, and, you know, North Carolina is one of those states that we have been really prudent. We've made really good decisions over the last 10 years. We've been very conservative in our spending. Uh, we have been able to save money. We have almost $4 billion in our unemployment trust fund. We have close to $3 billion in savings and rainy day funds and money that we put aside in our savings. We did that so that we would have that cushion if we have a big revenue hit like we're going to do. So, you know, if you think about it that way, the federal government is trying to not reward states who have made bad decisions at the expense of smart, prudent, responsible states like North Carolina. So, that is that's why those guardrails are on there. Now, I will tell you, there have been half a dozen or more governors, um, the John Locke Foundation, the organization that I work for, and other thought leaders across the country have written letters to Congress asking for some flexibility in the spending. Not that you would bail out bad decisions that were made before, but I'll give you an example. So right now, um, our Department of Transportation is really in bad shape. Um, there had been some management problems before, but we were we were doing okay. We, we were managing that. But the Department of Transportation in North Carolina gets their money from gas taxes, from the title transfer when people buy a car. You know that that transfer money goes into the transportation money. Well, you can imagine what the last six weeks have done to the. DOT budget. So we want to use some of this COVID money to fill those budget holes in the Department of Transportation that we would argue have occurred because of the COVID-19. But the way the federal rules are right now, we can't do that. So we have asked the federal government and other states have as well for a little bit more flexibility on how to spend that money. So when you mentioned the difference between the House and the Senate, one of the things that the Senate was arguing for of waiting to spend some of that money is let's wait and see if there's changes in the rules associated with the federal money and if we might be able to have more flexibility moving forward to help some of those things. You know, there's also, um, Pete, a real concern about um, the revenue hit to local governments mm -hmm. and municipalities because most of their revenue comes from the sales tax. And we already are seeing the impact of this on the sales tax. And so you've got local governments that are looking at things like um, school facilities. They're looking at um, water and sewer systems and some of those kind of things that, you know, their revenue is really down because of the sales tax. Right now, a lot of that federal money can't be used to help bolster those kind of things if we have a waiver from the federal government might be able to distribute that money differently 
Um, also, you know, if you just think about the 50 states, the the way that North Carolina pays for things, I would also argue the way that we have been really responsible um, with our budgeting over the last 10 years. But if you compare us with like California or New York or Texas, you know, our budgets are very different. The, um, the, the whole revenue picture looks different and the way we pay for things is different. And so to give states a little bit more flexibility so that they can take care of things in their states the way they need it taken care of is really the better way to do this. My guest is Becky Gray. She is the Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation. You can read her work as well as her colleagues at carolinajournal.com. It's a great source for all sorts of in-depth analysis and reporting on state um, uh, policy and uh, the impact that it has on North Carolinians. Are you prepared for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real military surplus? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. And just because the shop uh, isn't open right now because of the plague doesn't mean that they're still not operating. It's an old school traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. Uh, See my friend Tim. He will hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time. American made because it's real military surplus. Also, here's his number. You can text him. Get questions answered about stuff he's got for sale uh, on the website, oldgrouch.com. If you want to ask about getting an item that you don't see on the website, uh, or if you need some advice on emergency preparedness, what should you be focused on getting? What should your go bag have in it? That sort of stuff. 565-2497. 565-2497 is the number text only. It's just him. So if you have questions, you can send him a text. Also, EMS and law enforcement folks, if you're looking for uniforms, you can make an appointment uh, with Tim via that text line, and he can get you uh, uh, additional uniforms, all right? Oldgrouch.com, 565-2497, text only, oldgrouch.com. We are talking with Becky Gray. She is the Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation. You can read her work at carolinajournal.com. Just as a uh, side note, uh, uh, I'm a bit of a wordsmith. You are as well. And so I'm just going to throw this out there. Take it uh, if you uh, want to take it and use it and spread it, which is I would really love to see a better acronym for the stay at home executive order instead of S-A-H-E-O. I just it's just a mouthful. And so I'm I am just promoting on my own. No, there's I don't have a copyright to it or anything, but S-H-E-O, just eliminate the at, you know, because when you make acronyms, you don't need the at all the time, right? So you could just drop that, and then it just becomes the SHEO, the SHEO. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) just if if, if you like it, please spread it, and maybe folks in Raleigh will adopt it, the SHEO, the Stay Home Executive Order, right, the SHEO. Right, the SHEO, okay. (laughs) You know what, what I'm really hoping is that the governor is going to lift this. We are no longer going to have a SHEO and we won't have a need for an acronym or anything else. We can put it behind us and get people back to work, get the economy moving again, um, you know, for, free people, you know, from their homes. At the same time, you know, we're really looking at, and the Department of Health and Human Services has provided a lot of data. I think there's additional data out there that needs to be considered. But, you know, when as we, as we phase out of this, we need to make those decisions based on not fear 
and not emotion, but, you know, real data and the real danger that is out there for folks. And also, you know, Pete, I think for a long time, um, we're going to see people who choose to spend more time at home, people that choose to not gather in large groups, people that choose not to go to shopping malls or, you know, music concerts and and those kind of things. And I think, you know, absolutely, people should be allowed to, to do whatever they want to and to be and, you know, there there is a lot of cautiousness associated with this. Um, but to shut down the economy for any longer, it's every day that we continue with this, the the bigger the impact and the harder it's going to be to recover from this. And so when you look at, you know, we, we hit this week, um, this is just astounding to me, we hit this week, there are one million people in North Carolina who are out of work. Mm-hmm. One million people. Um you know, and, and and there's been real delays in getting unemployment benefits and, you know, the hours that people are spending on the phone trying to get those, the frustration, there are concerns about domestic violence, there are concerns about the stress that all of this puts on people, um, you know, mental health issues, um, substance abuse issues, you know, all of these things. And so when I think you consider the whole picture I mean, the whole answer to this is, you know, to lift the lift the lift the shio, and to get people back to work. That's the answer. Get people back to work. Get the economy moving again, and you know, have confidence as we move forward in the health implications. But you know, to to let people get back to work is going to solve a lot of these problems. So now that you've used it twice, does it feel it feel <laughs> feels natural, you know, it right? Does. It does. It does kind of kind of take it out for for a spin. There you go. And, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I like it. So one of the things. The biggest frustrations I've had um, in all of this is I gave a lot of uh, latitude, and I still do, to the governor more than I probably would on on any other issue or topic. I'm, I'm giving him and uh, his administration latitude on a lot of their decision making. I held my fire and bit my tongue on uh, some of the criticisms that I could be leveling that I think others uh, are starting to now level at him um, because at the beginning, nobody knew what was going on right this was highly contagious uh, it was awful we had no idea if anybody had it so many people are asymptomatic and so uh, you can you can spread it around before you present symptoms you may never present symptoms you can spread it around after you've th- you thought you got over it uh, which makes it so much more dangerous basically but at some point now that we've uh now that we're you know two months in we we've we've gotten data and now we can do some risk assessment in different age groups populations and what we're finding right is that you've got these outbreaks that occur at nursing homes they occur in prisons and they occur uh generally speaking you know mass transit systems like new york city uh or meat packing facilities like this is where it's happening uh and it's not happening really in the rural areas and so do we trust citizens to make these risk assessments for ourselves based on the data and unfortunately, we're not getting a lot of the data. I think that would be really, really helpful to say, okay, here's your demographic. You are this age. You have certain comorbidities, and uh, you live in a certain setting or not. And then you can find where the risk is for you. And people make these kinds of determinations all the time. They decide, I'm going to go climb a mountain, and I'm going to assume that risk. Um, you know, they're going to go roller skating, and they're going to assume that risk. And, and if we know what the risks are, I think that's a better 
that's a better way to have the debate rather than to scream at each other that you value money over lives or you want millions of people to die, you know. And usually the people saying that thing are the ones who are getting their food delivered, um, you know, to their homes <laughs> and like putting other people at risk to get what they need uh, in their self-isolation. So it's just, it's, it's become a very political and dishonest debate. And I fear that that's now where the, pol- uh, the policy is going to shift. Uh, because of that. Yeah, yeah, Pete, I, I just absolutely agree with you. And, you know, I think what we've done with this, as this has become more politically, more political and more polarized, you know, we're becoming further and further apart, which means that there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of leeway in the middle to come to real solutions with this. And, you know, the bottom line is we've got to keep people safe. And we've got to keep people healthy. Um, But we've also got to get the economy going again. So there's the public health part of this. There's also the economic health part of it. And a lot of the conversations are kind of around either or. Mm -hmm. I would argue it it can and should and has to be and both Mm -hmm. that we do both of them at the same at the same time and again you know you have to you mentioned trusting individuals to do what's best for them and their families and um, I think having the information about what your risk is and of course um, conferring with your doctor your health provider about what your risk may be um, is certainly something that everyone should be doing you know the washing the hands the wearing the mask you know all of those kind of things wiping down surfaces and and all of those kind of things that that people have been doing um, you know, it is clearly part of this, and we should trust people to be able to make decisions for themselves. But the other thing I have to think we have to do is we have to trust businesses. Um, you know, if, if you open a business and you have an outbreak and everybody that comes to your business or buys your product or whatever gets sick, chances are you're not going to be in bit, you know, that that devastation is even worse than what yeah. we've seen with the shutdown. So I think you have to trust business people to make decisions based on public health, but also, you know, and protecting their employees. I mean, if you have a business and you open it up and, you know, throw caution to the wind and all your employees get sick, you're not going to be able to keep your business open. You know, business people are going to make decisions based on keeping their business open and and being successful with that. Um, So I think we have to trust businesses. And then I think we also have to trust trust individuals to interact with those businesses to the extent that they can or want to you know we're hearing more and more about people can um the because there's fewer stores and fewer essential businesses um that are allowed to do business the walmarts the targets the lows the home depots you have all these people crowding into those stores but yet you know somebody can go to walmart to buy art supplies but yet they can't go to a small independently owned art supply store you know where there may be the the proprietor and one customer in the shop that is deemed unnecessary non-essential and so some of these things too i think the longer that we go on it just makes sense to begin to open this up let people make decisions and trust businesses and individuals to make their own decisions the other thing that i think is going to be really helpful I wish North Carolina had been a little bit more aggressive with pushing forward with this, but there are other states that have been more aggressive than we are. Um, Right here, you know, our neighbors, Georgia and South Carolina, you know, are two that have opened up much more than North Carolina has. Um, You know, their lift lift 
liftoff orders, um, you know, been in place for a, a week or so. And so I think everyone is watching those states, too, to see as you open this up, what does that look like? I mean, you know, are people being cautious? Are businesses assuming responsibility? Are we going to have a big outbreak of the disease as as these states move forward? And I think we can get a feel for what that would look like in North Carolina using other states as an example of how how to do it and or, or you know, perhaps how not to do it. But um you know, we, we, we are not going to be the first in the country to do this. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people are frustrated saying North Carolina will be the last in the country to do that. Um, I, I don't think we're going to be the last, but I think, I think we are one of the more cautious states in moving forward with this. We are talking with Becky Gray. She is the Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation. You can read her work at carolinajournal.com. Are you scrambling to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. Uh, so let my friend Schaefer Smith help you out with logos, graphics, photos. He can help you with search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. If you're trying to build out a whole online store, he can help you with that. For professional services, corporate, small business, entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith. Make your site look professional, user-friendly for not just your customers, but for you as well, so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. Uh, lawmakers also declined a series of election policy changes. Uh, I was watching uh, House Speaker Tim Moore when he uh, was uh, doing the video uh, Shaftesbury Society with you all at the John Locke Foundation a couple days ago. And I think he said something uh, along the order of uh, uh, over my dead body. <laughs> it was he was not going to entertain any of these kinds of election policy reforms and funding requests that came from the State Board of Elections. Uh, Speaker Moore says, look, we're not going to do this like mass mailing of ballots, right? Like uh, 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 we have absentee balloting. And if you want to vote by mail, you can do that. There's no need uh, to to implement a brand new system. So what is behind this push? Is there some policy reason why we need to uh, entertain this idea? Or is this simply uh, these groups trying to take advantage of a bunch of money being thrown around and people being worried about not being able to vote? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been a little bit puzzled about this, Pete, to be honest with you from the beginning. Um, there has been a push for um, you know, more vote by mail kind of things. And, and we've seen this in other states, and this seems to be coming from the more progressive Democratic side of things. Um, we can vote by mail here in North Carolina. We've been able to do this for years. It's an absentee ballot, and you, requ you request a ballot ahead of time. You can do this by mail. Um, they mail it to you. You fill it out, um, have it notarized or get some witnesses, and you mail it back in. I mean, I have voted absentee or vote by mail numerous times. It's it's very easy. It's convenient. And this has always been an option in North Carolina. So this whole notion of, you know, we have to change everything or that, you know, instead of having people go to the polls, we will um, have everybody vote by, everybody will get um, a, a ballot in the mail. I, I don't know why we have to do this. I think, again, November is a long way off. And one thing that we have learned with this COVID-19 and the coronavirus and the response is it changes pretty quickly. I mean, it is. Th think where we were. I mean, today is what, May 4th? Mm -hmm. Think where we were on March 4th and just how, you know, I mean, just 
seems like it was eons ago and everything that has happened since then. Well, you know, then fast forward to November 3rd and think about, you know, where we might be. We don't know. Um, again, this absentee ballot, voting by mail, has always been an option. And for let's just assume that things move forward and that, that we are able to have the polling places open. Now, it may be that, you know, there's more distance between those little kiosks that you vote at. There may be some um, other restrictions, um, the six-foot social distancing and some other things like that. There may be, you know, standing in line six feet apart. I mean, you know, we don't know. There may be some of those, but for a lot of people, they like to go to the polls and vote. I don't see any reason why we can't do that. Um, and then those folks who would prefer to vote by mail, and we will probably have more people choosing to do the absentee ballot just in light of everything that's happened. And, you know, particularly with older folks that are that are more susceptible, um, we may have more um, vote by mail. But I, I'm, I've just kind of been confused by this because we already have it and it's an option and some people will exercise it and, and some people won't. Um, one thing, Pete, that I will mention is there was a Meredith poll this last week and those were a couple of the questions that they asked. Um, and, and one of them was... Um, Though it's many months away, we're interested in your thoughts on the 2020 election. Because of the epidemic, some have suggested voting by mail. Do you support this idea? Now, support voting by mail is different than everybody gets their ballot, you know, in the mail. But 63% supported that idea. 31% uh, said they opposed it. And again, that's just, you know, um, suggested voting by mail. Um, and then the other thing is, is the integrity in that that voting by mail and um can you pick a can you pick up the ballot this is this gets into the ballot harvesting component which is uh people get the ballots sent to them and then we'll have these third parties come and help them out and collect them and bring them to the board of elections which opens up all sorts of avenues for mischief oh yeah yeah and you know we've already seen this and there was even some talk um during this election during these debates about the election about changing some of the of the regulation that the general assembly had put in place because of that ba right. ballot <laughs> harvesting that was occurring and that is not going to happen and i mean you know that's just a terrible idea to think that um that you would loosen those um the regulation around that that offers some security with it but you know i thought this was interesting too on this meredith poll pete they asked if um if the election was done entirely by mail how confident would you be in the results um so again getting to your mm. point of you know can people pick up somebody else's ballot could they intercede those you know what would happen there and it was 42 percent were were not confident and 42% would be confident with it. So mm. it's kind of interesting to see. Um, it's also, you know, though, the, in, in the way the question is framed, it's uh, I, I support the ability to mail in your absentee ballot vote by mail. I have no problem with that. I would like the option, though. I guess the it seems like it's conveying or it's implying some sort of a uh, – forced policy as if that's the only choice you know exactly. and, and that's what right. i'm not a fan of i don't like the these these i don't like these false dichotomies that i'm either uh going to be for mail-in or i'm going to be you know return to the way it always was like well no we could we can do both like we can take right. all of the above as one of the options here 
Yeah, and the concerns about the ballot harvesting, I mean, you know, you never know. And, you know, I'm always amazed at how um, criminals and people who are intent on cheating the system, you know, I'm always amazed at their creativity and the way that they can get around things. <laughs> right. um, but, but I know when that happened, and I mean, there were people that went to jail over that ballot harvesting in Bladen County and Robeson County and, um, you know, in, in that part of the state, although, you know, we'd heard that it was going on in other parts of the state as well. But the General Assembly really took a look at that and came down very hard and, um, you know, put some some new laws in place that hopefully would prohibit that kind of activity. Um, but, you know, there, there is concern, and I think rightfully so, in the integrity of our elections. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, so many people have been so upset about the voter ID requirement that North Carolinians voted overwhelmingly in favor of requiring a voter ID. And then we had an activist judge step in and overturn that. And, you know, many people, um, and I think rightfully so, you know, question whether not having some sort of photo ID when you go to vote um, undermines the integrity of the election system. And I think when you have a mistrust of the election system, then that really suppresses votes because people feel like if the system is rigged, then why bother going out and participating in it? Yeah, that's one of the arguments that's usually never mentioned in the voter ID um, debate. Uh, well, I'm glad I, I'm not uh, I don't know. This is going to sound bad when I say it. I know as I'm thinking it through, but I'm glad you're confused by this because I was as well. And if we're both confused that I'm not crazy because right. I was thinking, like, right. I don't understand why this is being pushed right now. Surely Becky's got some sort of uh, explanation. But if you don't, yeah, I mean, then then there isn't one. <laughs> well, you know, I just I mean, I think the answer to it is, you know, if you want the if you want the option to vote by mail, we have that. It's yeah. absentee ballot. And I can tell you because I've done it before. It's very easy and it's you know, it's a good way to do it. So um, when <clears throat> when my friends from the left say, you know, what we need, you know, we need to be able to vote by mail. We, we can. Right. So next question. Yeah, yeah, I just did. I literally just did for the. Uh, for the runoff that we have here in the uh, oh, the 11th right. congressional. Yeah. So I literally just sent that away. So, uh, well, you know what, Pete, though, that's something else. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something else that some of the um, election change proponents have been saying is they want to watch and see how this election, this second primary up there, and this is in the middle of the COVID-19, how this works. So this is really going to be a test case to see, um, you know, how, how how it works and some things that maybe we should look at and some things maybe we should just not worry about mm. for the November election. Becky Gray, the Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation. I appreciate you being so generous with your time with us, and uh, we will have you back again when the legislature returns to spend billions of more dollars on COVID-related items. Uh, and and uh, I will be right there in the middle of it <laughs> and bring, bring you the real story. All right. Thank you, Becky. I appreciate your time. Take care. Pete, always a pleasure. Thank you. When I first got here in 2012, the first advertiser that took a chance on me and my show to sign up for an endorsement when I had zero was Rowena Patton. She's been a supporter of me and the show for eight years. She's a part of this community, and she also just happens to be an awesome real estate agent. She outsells 99% of the realtors in North Carolina. She's the only agent that I would use to buy or sell a house. 
And I would recommend her to you. 333-4483 is the phone number. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com. She is the official and only Homes for Heroes real estate agent in Asheville. It's a national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from the realtor commissions. Uh, that goes to police, uh, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, members of the military, so veterans, active duty, and retired. She's given back uh, about $800,000 to local folks in those professions. All right. I don't know why you'd use anybody else. Call Rowena Patton, 333-4483 or mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. Becky Gray mentioned this uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, the impact that the COVID-19 is having on state and local budgets. There was a story here, um, Citizen Times, a couple of weeks ago. The city of Asheville is moving to slash millions of dollars from its budget with bus system upgrades, a city worker pay boost, and renewable energy, the likely financial victims of the coronavirus pandemic. It is interesting to me in times of crisis like this, you start seeing the true core services uh, sort of rise to the top in uh, local budgets uh, priorities, right? Uh, all of a sudden, now the things that were really, really important, and we just had to do these things. Now, all of a sudden, when you don't have any money to do them, you're like, okay, yeah, no, we're not doing these things. Also, uh, I understand the need for a mass transit bus system. I get the rationale for it. I'm not saying I agree with it in all of its many forms. I'm just saying I understand the argument for it. Um, but I don't know if that argument is helped by a highly contagious virus that is spread by contact on you know metal and plastic surfaces. Not exactly um, uh, a great virus for the mass transit systems of America or the world for that matter. Asheville is now facing losses of about $6 million in taxes and other revenue in the next two months and millions more in the next fiscal year. The council got an update in April at their work session, um, and uh, they said even during, this is, by the way, the to, to Assistant City Finance Director Tony McDowell, even during the depths of the Great Recession, so 10 years ago, the worst quarterly sales tax drop was 10%. By comparison, the League of Municipalities is right now estimating uh, that for the last quarter of the year, we could see a 20% decline. The drop could be even worse uh, at 35%, according to Buncombe County government budgeters. Buncombe County government, which also covers city residents, is looking to slash millions in potential programs, such as additional school resource officers and a $1 million contribution to make city buses fare-free. <gasps> no! Yeah, apparently that's... <laughs> uh, yeah, that's on the chopping block. to the, the Brownie Newman's uh, election gambit, right? His vote for me, I'll give you free buses. That's what that was about. So that's going to go uh, the million, yeah, the million dollar vote buying plan. I'm sorry, the mass transit improvement idea. Planned cuts include an employee pay raise of two and a half percent. Yeah, that's not going to be a good look, by the way. Just a heads up. That's not going to be a good look when you've got a million North Carolinians unemployed. You've got uh, unemployment rates rivaling the Great Depression from a century ago, uh, not a good look to start handing out pay raises to city employees. Just my advice on that one, but we'll see what happens. 
slashes uh, to the capital projects budget, maintenance to the New River Arts District infrastructure, which is interesting because, um, I don't know, it's been a while since I was down in the River Arts District, but is there actually any money being spent on maintenance down there? It didn't really look like, (laughs) well, come on, it doesn't. All right. Um, And uh, let's see here, to do renewable energy projects to replace roofs for solar panels. Okay. Um, what will some programs will move ahead? State mandated increases in employee retirement fund contributions, new fire department positions, uh, and um, there's like half a million dollars to raise the earnings of the lowest paid workers up to thirty one thousand dollars two hundred thirty one to a year, which is uh, fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. So here is the story. This is by the way, Citizen Times. Uh, the reporter is Joel Burgess who writes, under COVID-19 shutdowns, the system is still operating but has faced drastic changes with bus routes reduced but extra buses added to others. Um, Buses were made fare-free with riders required to use only the rear door and only 10 allowed per bus. Julie Mayfield, a city council member who has pushed for transit upgrades, said some of the federal aid should be used to follow a long-standing plan to extend evening hours. The longer this lasts and the longer people are out of work, the more transit becomes key um, to the uh, recovery and part of the resilience of our city. But other council members said with many unknowns about future revenues, it would make sense to use the money for one-time transit expenses rather than a recurring annual cost. Yeah, this is the issue. Why would you take the money and say, hey, let's set up a recurring cost when we don't have recurring revenue to cover it. (laughs) Uh, Becky Gray also mentioned that uh, she thinks her sense is, and the rumors are swirling, and this is also my belief, that the governor is going to move us to phase one this weekend, May 8th. I think the writing is on the wall, and I looked at this story in the paper as evidence Uh, that this is being telegraphed and maybe word has gone out that the governor is going to, uh, he's moving us into phase one. And so uh, the stay-at-home order does does still exist, by the way. But he said he would modify some of it, but I don't know what that means, so we're all going to have to wait, and maybe he's going to tell us at a press conference. Uh, But the Great Smoky Mountains National Park announced Saturday plans to reopen some popular roads and trails following a major shutdown due to COVID-19. Beginning on May 9th, the park will reopen many roads and trails. This was on their Twitter feed, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park Twitter feed. Campgrounds, picnic pavilions, uh, visitor centers, and, quote, many secondary roads will remain closed. During the first reopening phase, said the tweet, the phase is expected to last for at least two weeks. So, Cooper's order uh, is May 8th, and here is the Great Smoky Mountains National Park announcing that, hey, you know what, May 9th, we're totally going to start opening some stuff back up. So, I think the word has gone out. I think that folks are starting to get prepared for what this is going to look like. Start opening stuff as you can. Again, because it's not about essential or not essential. It's about Can you do this safely? And I would suspect that if you can't walk on a trail in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, if you can't walk a trail safely, then you shouldn't even be walking on sidewalks, 
right? This was the joke we talked with Chad Adams from Wilmington a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the absurdity of closing a beach, but you can walk right next to the beach on the sidewalk, right? Like, that's allowed. So you can just do, do not step on that sand. If you get on the sand, now you're in violation. The phase-in plan that Cooper announced isn't reasonable, wrote John Hood at the John Locke Foundation a couple of weeks, or sorry, days ago at the Chatham Journal newspaper. He says it is too slow, it is too rigid, and it is too draconian. To put it bluntly, the plan is wholly inadequate to the moment we face, a moment of crisis for hundreds of thousands of North Carolinians and a moment of painful sacrifice for millions more. Well, I mean, now, to be fair, Cooper has shown that he is willing to put citizens through pain if it advances his personal political ambitions. I mean, I'm old enough to remember HB2. So, uh, at tremendous cost in liberties and livelihoods, John Hood writes, they have complied with government dictates originally justified to flatten the curve, so that surging demand for hospital beds and intensive care did not outstrip capacity. Right. I was advocating it for that very same reason. Initial projections of the need for COVID-19 hospitalizations were exaggerated, though. This has been admitted to by the modelers themselves. So the need for hospitalization in North Carolina has stayed far, far below capacity. So did stay at home orders help to flatten the curve? Almost certainly. But the curve was going to be flatter than originally projected anyway. In fairness, That is not something that Cooper and other governors could have counted on a month ago, right? They didn't know. I give them the benefit of the doubt. I do. It's this kind of updated information that should be informing their decisions today. Another is that North Carolina's COVID-19 cases, like those in other states, are not equally distributed. There are large swaths of our state where there are relatively few confirmed cases and deaths, where businesses and workplaces have been shut down for weeks while hospitals remained largely vacant. And, he says, most unreasonably of all, the governor makes no distinctions among North Carolinians' very different communities. Just as it would be unreasonable to apply the same level of restriction simultaneously to New York and New Mexico, it is unreasonable to treat Durham County and Duplin County, which has no reported deaths and fewer than half the number of confirmed cases per capita. If you give North Carolinians a binary choice of lift all restrictions immediately or keep most of them in place for another month or two, most are going to opt for keeping them in place. But those are not the only choices. There's a middle course here. Right, A phased reopening that starts within days gets people back to work while keeping hospitals from being overcrowded. That's the reasonable choice. Alas, Governor Cooper did not make it. Although, it seems like he may be making it by May 8th. Fingers crossed, everybody. All right, if you like the show and the content we are doing, please subscribe to the podcast if you liked it. And if you don't, uh, then uh, you don't have to subscribe. If you did like it, though, please subscribe and think about leaving a positive review. I appreciate that. You can check the podcast description for all sorts of helpful links. Thank you so much for the support. We'll talk to you later. And uh, don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>